Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly, and sometimes whenever we can manage it podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. Each episode, we might look at a different aspect of the game, whether that's particular cards or a particular investigator or something slightly broader. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... Uh, It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Uh, Yeah, enjoying the the ominous dark clouds that are gathering in Edinburgh here. Have you been performing cult rituals again or something like that? Uh, It's not me this time. It's uh, certainly someone (laughs) somewhere has been. (laughs) Uh, any idea who that someone might be? <laughs> well, funny you should mention, we have got a special guest today. Today we've got lead designer of Arkham Horror and lead designer on Dunwich Legacy. It's Matt Newman. Hi everyone, and sorry for the dark clouds. That was definitely me performing that ritual. At least you're <laughs> honest about your powers. It's good yep, to have that yep. up front. Somehow I managed to reach all the way across the ocean. <laughs> nice. So you're the lead designer of Arkham Horror along with Nate French, is that right? Yep. And you took the lead on the first cycle for the game, the Dunwich Legacy? Yeah, so me and Nate worked together on the design of the core set, and um, with you know with the knowledge that I'd be taking over the, the line afterwards, because um, he's since moved on to uh, working on Legends of the Five Rings. So I am, cool. I'm the lead developer for, you know, from now until the... Uh, foreseeable future. (laughs) Great, cool. Well, I think the community are very pleased about that because the the feedback I've got about the the Dunwich Legacy has been that it's been a fantastic ride and you've probably heard on this podcast how happy we've been playing it and how exciting it's been. So what we thought we'd want to do this episode is probably try and jump into talking about the first cycle in particular rather than doing a general discussion about the game itself yeah definitely for our listeners if you want to hear matt talking more about his own background or arkham horror in general there are some really good interviews out there there's one with the mythos busters podcast i know the youtube channel team covenant have done a really good interview as well and i think peter is going to find some links for us to put in our show notes so if you want to check out other interviews you can do our usual spoiler policy we we like to stay a story pack behind so we wouldn't be talking about the events of uh, Lost in Time and Space normally now but considering we've got Matt it's a perfect opportunity to talk about the whole cycle so (laughs) everyone beware if you haven't finished uh, we're likely to be spoiling the ending so go ahead go play it it's great uh, and then we'll still be here when you when you're finished. (laughs) Yeah and if you're one of those people who've waited for the entirety of the cycle to come out before you've played any of it Maybe save this episode for when you've when you've finished your campaign, and obviously reserve the, the rest of the weekend to get your playing done so that you can listen to this. Yeah, for sure. And, and now's the time to get that cycle because Carcosa is going to be starting soon. Yeah, there's I think a lot of excitement for Carcosa in the community at large. I'm very excited. Oh, good, good. <laughs> so, Matt. Yeah. When you launched Arkham Horror at Arkham Knights last year, sort of nine months ago, something like that, you and Nate talked in quite a lot of detail about some of the bigger concepts of the game, so mm-hmm. uh, card game versus RPG and how those things fit together, as well as what you might expect in the core set. So what we want to do is is jump in more into talking about the game's 
first full cycle, the Dunwich Legacy, and finding out from you what your intentions were with what you wanted to bring to the game with this cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Dunwich Legacy was a really interesting uh, cycle to work on because up until now I'd only ever worked on Lord of the Rings, and Lord of the Rings, we uh, by the time I was hired, we were in cycle four. So the game had already been pretty well established by that point. You know, I already knew kind of like what the community liked, what the community was looking for. Um, and that made it, I, I would say, a lot easier to design scenarios for the game. Dunwich, I was designing Dunwich before the base game came out. So I was kind of flying blind a little bit. You know, like I knew what my playtesters liked and I knew what I liked but the community hadn't gotten their hands on the game yet. So it was really a challenge to design it. I'm really happy that everyone likes it as much as they do. Honestly, like everyone's uh, kind words have been like super touching in the last like six months or so. As far as what we wanted... I was just going to say, it was, I think, a very natural reaction, certainly for me as a player, but other people I've spoken to, you know, it wasn't... People were happy to be delighted about the different experiences that the game was providing. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I think for the first cycle of any game, our primary goal is to just kind of show off what the game can do and, you know, not add too many new rules, but basically say, like, look at the foundation of this game and look at all the things that we can do with it. And so that's kind of why the Dunwich Legacy has so many different varying scenarios. And we've used that approach in Lord of the Rings before as well. First cycle of Lord of the Rings, every scenario was very different from the last one. And also just kind of expanding the basic card pool for players. It, it definitely comes across. I think you. this is one of the reasons I'm so excited for Path to Carcosa is everything we've seen so far is that it's taking quite a different, a different angle on it. Dunwich feels like a bigger, more epic version maybe of the Corset campaign. So it's it's that... It's it's right. quite a traditional. I think you you mentioned this. You, you preempted a bunch of my questions in your design notes in the leaflet on the last one. That the Dunwich mm-hmm. Horror is it, it's a very <laughs> Arkham Filesy story, isn't it? Where you've got the investigators, they go and fight the monster, yeah, yeah. and then they they win. Yeah, I, I would say the Dunwich Horror is up there with the classic Lovecraft stories. Of you know, there's there's um, you've got your unlikely heroes, you've got the giant monster the incomprehensible situation going on, and you've got the bad guys seeking to summon, you know, the Ancient One, and the good guys stopping it. It's a very classic story as far as Lovecraft goes. And I think for the first cycle, it's important to draw on elements that players are familiar with, um, especially fans of the Arkham Horror franchise. Um, So that's kind of why Dunwich was the first cycle. You see some of the iconic characters popping up as well. So so Henry Armitage, for instance. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted people who have read the Dunwich Horror to to see these characters and be like, oh, cool. Especially if they just read the Dunwich Horror, maybe in, in preparation for the cycle, then, they, then they're, they're excited to see these characters again. And for players who haven't read the Dunwich Horror, that's maybe an opportunity to, to see this character and see, like, Zebulon Waitley. Zebulon, yeah. interesting <laughs> name. Who's that fellow? Uh, and then read up more about uh, him and maybe read the Dunwich Horror as a result. That's really exciting to me because it gets more people invested in the in the lore uh, behind the game. So, well, there are some great moments once you reach the village where the flavor text starts being directly drawn from Lovecraft's own writing. Yeah. And... 
and that is that becomes really immersive because you're not quite sure at what then as a player are you actually you know the sort of the 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 shape of the text uh, interferes in your game playing and you're, you you see Lovecraft's name around the place so it's sort of both pulling <laughs> you out of the game but also pulling you into the story which is yeah really really satisfying so I, I just had a, a quick question when you were talking about the first full cycle. Was were there any concerns about how the corset campaign, the Night of the Zealot, would whether it would feel too similar to Dunwich or anything like that? This idea of you know finding out cult activity and and stopping it, or did you feel that they were different enough for it not to be a problem? A little bit. I mean, both both kind of uh, culminate in the same climax of. Uh, like, all right, here's the ancient one coming out, and you got to stop. You you got to seal it up before they manage to escape and destroy the world and that sort of thing. Um, obviously, the, there's bits of the narrative that are quite different between the two, but the overarching sort of threat is is the same in in the two cycles. So there's a little bit of concern there, but I felt like the enemy and like the why of it was different enough to differentiate the two. You know, like the cult of Umordoth is very different from the sorcerers in Dunwich who maybe don't quite really understand what they're doing or why they're doing it even. They just kind of want power. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of o- opaque motive is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, where you have cultists, but you as the player actually, you don't know what they're doing. That yeah. that can be really enjoyable to just, that that in itself is scary. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I was going to say is that I, I remember when we unpacked the last scenario, and one of the things I actually quite like about the game and this, the, the Mythos pack design is that it gives you a hint as to what's going to happen at the end because it tells you, set aside such and such a card. So you, you, you right. look and you, there's yog Sothoth as a card and you're like, well, there's lots of sanity icons on that <laughs> or, or <laughs> horror icons on that. <laughs> and then I remember thinking, I hope like uh, the Devourer Below, there's a way that I don't have to fight this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, right. It's very foreboding to read the game text, you know, set aside Yag-Sothoth, and you think to yourself, oh, well, that (laughs) can't be good. (laughs) Yeah, or if if you're an optimist like me, you think, at least he's not starting the scenario in play. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Or he's not shuffled into the encounter deck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Funny story, uh, we actually had a botched playtest session in which Yag Sothoth was accidentally shuffled into the encounter deck <laughs> and wow. showed up, showed up around turn like just long enough that we had already been playing for like thirty minutes, but not so long that you know, like it, if it had happened in turn one, it would have been easy to reset, but we were already infested, so we were like, oh, good. <laughs> oh good it's yeah. so about how you doing there? <laughs> yeah what was he doing wandering around right. <laughs> in another dimension yeah but anyway um as far as like the overall cycle goes one of our design sort of goals for the card game uh for each campaign is that like each campaign maybe feels like one session of arkham horror the the board game uh when you're playing arkham horror the board game gates are opening up all over the place right and you go yeah. to the gate, you enter it, and then you close it. That's kind of like the central gameplay loop of Arkham Horror. So we wanted the card game, each campaign feels like one of that. Go to the place where the gate is, go inside the gate, everything is crazy, close it. So that that like central loop 
Not that every campaign is going to be exactly like that, and Carcosa will disprove that right off the bat, but that's kind of the idea. You know what I mean? That, that, that's really interesting, because yeah. I, I remember I, the board game was, was the first one I, I, I really bought when I got back into board games, well, I guess about yeah. sort of 10 years ago or something like that. I don't know, when, when, when did the updated version come out? seven or eight years ago uh, oh boy yeah a while ago <laughs> uh, anyway yes but you, you know you go to the, the the dreamlands and you just is it the dreamlands and you just it, it's two turns and you move through it and then something weird happens on each one but that feels right. like it's expanded yeah. into a whole scenario here yeah, yeah yeah that was that was my goal with that particular scenario was to take something that you know in the past has been uh, a few lines of text on a card and turn it into an entire scenario <laughs> But I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, before we talk about scenarios, then should we just talk about the player cards a bit? Sure. Let's do that. Yeah, let's let's jump I mean, in on that because I've I've been involved in in a couple of LCGs before. I know Frank's the same. I sort of feel that you often find the first cycle. I, there's like a tipping point. I feel just sort of the beginning of the second cycle, where the number of player cards you've got is enough, and the archetypes of deck explodes at that point. Because mm. I think in all the games you're getting maybe. Two, three, four cards per faction, and I think you reach a tipping point just after the the second deluxe, or I guess the first deluxe and other another LCGs. Yeah, and the first cycle itself is kind of themes key to the faction that didn't fit in the core set. Is is that something you feel applies to Arkham Horror or not? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, for the player cards, our like primary goal was just expanding the card pool and giving players more options like you say like reaching that tipping point because obviously in the core set uh your your deck building is a little bit more limited mm-hmm. so we we wanted it to be so that by the time you reach the end of the cycle you were maybe excited to replay the entire cycle with with a much larger card pool and a lot more options to start with yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> peter and i have both spent time now planning runs through the the campaign now that we've seen the full pool of cards um, i've actually just started one today um so whether whether particular you know either flavor themes or mechanic themes that you wanted to bring out for the individual factions yeah definitely um i like i said they're a little bit more just uh kind of expanding the the basic card pool and giving more options for players but there were certain themes that we wanted to focus on uh so for example survivors have the exile cards which they have none of in the core set they're really only in this cycle for now and so there's i want to say five or six of them or yeah, something sounds like about that. yeah which, sounds which about right a decent amount that's a good like 30 to 40 percent of the cards that they get which those are a lot of fun to play with because especially when you're playing in campaign mode, you're always hesitant to use them, knowing that you're gonna have to spend experience to get them back if 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 that if you're even gonna try to get them back. That was a fascinating thing in playing the campaign that as the the mythos packs came out, we saw the higher and higher XP cards for all the other factions, and Survivor was reaching that three XP point and never going higher, and people yeah, started yeah. to say you know, is that because they have Exile instead, these much more powerful effects that are maybe under-costed in terms of XP, but they're one-off. Um, and it was really fun sort of watching that happen and thinking, right, we're opening Lost in Time and Space now. Will there be a 5 XP survivor card or is it not going to happen? <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, yeah, the Exile is sort of their replacement for 4 and 5 experience cards. And also thematically, it just kind of fits their 
their MO. Like, five experience cards, by their very nature, are cards that are, like, if you have them, you feel like you're prepared. You're, you're far more prepared when you have a shotgun going up against these threats, or when you have deciphered reality, that sort of thing. And survivors, yeah, yeah. by their very nature, are not prepared. You know, they, they shouldn't get these powerful five experience cards because they that's like antithetical to their very nature. So instead, I think the survivor motif for leveling up will be having lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of one to three experience cards rather than a few very expensive cards. You might end up with a deck with almost everything in it being uh, an XP card, just right. not a very high XP card. Yeah, I mean, if you if you end your, you know, if you end a eight scenario campaign with 30 experience, that's definitely, or 35 experience or 40 experience, that's definitely a possibility. Um, and that's a possibility that, that will get more, I think, more plausible over time as there's more upgrades. What's interesting yeah. then is contrasting with the rogues, because the rogues have got right. the keyword exceptional, which means they probably have far fewer. They have, I guess, the the most experience costing card in the uh, gold pocket watch, which is eight experience. Yeah, yeah. There's the, so they're like the opposite in that sense, in that they are, their their rogues are very gambly, right? They they like to uh, to have some risk in their deck building. Mm. So they're all about putting all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. So they'll spend eight experience on this card, six experience on this card, and then maybe a couple four or five experience cards. And then their play style is to just hope they draw them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or have lots of cards that help them draw them, maybe. And if they do, then awesome. They feel really great. Yeah, I suppose that completely plays into this idea of sort of tricks within the within the green faction. Right. How does that fit then with having adaptable be a one XP sort of deck building permanent that they've also they've also got this uh, amazing ability to tinker with their deck as well yeah it's kind of the other end uh, of the coin right the spectrum so that, like they have the really 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 high experience cards but then the rest of their deck is zero experience cards at that point right if that's the style that you're building your deck so we wanted to give them some way to play around with those zero experience cards and encourage them to keep a lot of zero experience cards in their deck instead of trying to do the more like survivory or guardian thing of constantly upgrading their deck. So if you have adaptable, then you don't feel as bad having 16, 18 zero experience cards in your deck because you can swap them out. Yeah, yeah. And also, of course, that encourages the sort of the replay value of the scenarios that you coming with a little bit of, of foreknowledge can be a really powerful thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and what about skill cards within Rogue? Because that was a, the other feature I thought about the, the Rogue pool in Dunwich was that they, they received the most skill cards, I think, and and some really interesting skill cards that, that played off this sort of gambling uh, yeah. streak. Yeah, and... I think that's largely because rogues are uh, that that sort of risk. Um, not risk in the same way that mystics have risk in their card pool. They they have risk like, well, I really hope I succeed this test because I have thrown <laughs> all of my eggs into this basket. Um, and skill cards represent that really nicely because you commit them before you know if you're going to succeed or not. Um, so it's just a natural fit for rogues to have cards like quick thinking that it, you commit to a test, and if you succeed by two, you get a benefit. 
because you you never know yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. You, then you draw the minus four, minus five, and uh, and you say, oh, dang it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it, one of the things I love about a card like Quick Thinking is the times that you really need that extra action are the times that you don't really want to gamble. Right. And that produces for me some really fun play moments because it, it's sort of the, the antithesis of the well-prepared, well-organized investigator who's, you know, being too above every test and passing them all sort of, you know, handily and not worrying about failure too much. And right. for, for Rogue, it's often, I'm, yeah, exactly as you say, I'm going to put all of my eggs in this basket and if I land it, happy days. And if not... I'll go limping back to the asylum. <laughs> yeah, and we'll definitely see more of that in the Carcosa cycle, because that is a pretty central rogue theme. Great. I was just going to move on to uh, to Seekers. Please. Um, so for Seekers, they're pretty straightforward, I feel. Um, we wanted to give them you know, a lot more ways to get clues, a lot more ways to use their clues as well, mm, and yeah. use intellect uh, to their advantage. But also we wanted to give them a few options for, for you know, avoiding combat or some one-time options for, you know, I want to use my clues for something other than advancing the act deck. So that's where cards like I've, I've Got a Plan come from and um, that sort of thing. And Dr. Mallison as well, right? Oh yeah, Dr. Mallison, yep. Yeah, I'm going to use my clues to avoid a nasty enemy or a nasty treachery card. And I think we've already shown some cards from the Carcosa cycle that also do a similar thing of placing a clue on your location in order to get some side benefit. There's this the Seeker Encounter Avoidance card, um, which, which leads me to suspect you might we might see something similar on all the factions if we've already got a Mystic one and a and a Survivor one and sort of a Guardian one. Do you think? <laughs> do you think because rogues love gambling, it'll be something like you know? Discard this card, draw another three encounter cards instead. <laughs> Failed gamble. So one of the features of the the Dunwich Legacy cycle was allies, and we've already touched on the fact that there's Zebulon Waitley and there's Henry Armitage and there are other allies within the the scenario scenarios right. that can become part of your deck and charisma mm-hmm. came out in the first pack of the of the cycle to encourage people to think about that ally slot. Seeker had all of these additional allies joining their pool with these great when they come into play effects. Was that always the plan that the uh, sort of Miskatonic as a trait is going to be this sort of little swarm? And yeah, wh- where did you want to go with that? Yeah, uh, that was definitely planned from the beginning. Although it's certainly a mold that will not always be uh, like, it's not a rule per se just kind of a theme of theirs but like every card type works a little bit differently in each class so allies for example uh guardian allies are a little different from rogue allies or a little different from seeker allies and so on and so forth yeah so like survivor allies are like these these powerful mentor types who you want to stick around for a long time aquina peter silvestri they're like uh if you're the main character of the horror movie they're your best friend who helps you survive but Seeker yeah. allies are kind of just along for the ride, with the exception of maybe like Dr. Milan and uh, Dr. Mallison. A lot of the Seeker allies are these non-unique uh, kind of mook characters who show up, give you a benefit, and then 
what happens to them next is kind of entirely up to you. <laughs> if you're in that sort of campus horror movie, they're the, I know who can help us. And then you go to the, like the computer suite or the library and there's a bunch of nerds hanging out who all right. know what you need. Yeah, exactly. You you show up at the library and the librarian says, I found this tome that might help you. And then you say, thanks. And then he immediately gets gobbled up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor fellow. Yeah. So, so the, the the other interesting interesting thing that Seekers did this cycle was interact directly with the, the campaign log. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, this kind of goes back to what we were saying before with Exile and Exceptional, uh, where we wanted each class to feel different, not just in like the, the text of each card and like the card pool itself, but also in how they think about upgrading their deck. So like guardians are the straightforward class. So their deck building is pretty straightforward. Uh, but for seekers, we wanted to give them this feeling of, well, you know, seeking they're, they're looking for an answer. Right. And the way that we did that was with the strange solution, which is a card that you honestly have no idea what it does at first. Um, and obviously now we do, but even now it's still fun to play through and have this card in your deck that you can't wait to upgrade, but you have to actually do something. You're, you have to go out of your way, like almost like a little side quest to complete it before you can upgrade it. And then you have multiple different branching options, which is something that currently no other card in the game has. I think it's it's a really interesting little mechanic, and I don't want to speculate, obviously, because you you can't tell us. Right. But I I think you can use this to do lots of interesting things. Like like the the card you upgrade to doesn't even need to be a seeker card, so it could benefit someone else in your sure. in your group. Yeah. Um, there's like all kinds of things you could do with this mechanic. I think it's really cool. It's a really nice little way of doing this side quest type content. Yeah, yeah, and as you said, Peter, it's 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 the player actively getting something onto the campaign log as opposed to just hitting a resolution and writing down what the campaign log, into their campaign log, what they're told to record by the resolutions. I mean, we talked about this before, Frank, and when we got to the end, even if we'd started off with the same decks, you know, they're probably very different by the end. And if we see some other cards like this, we might get to the end and our campaign logs, even if we follow roughly the same path, our campaign logs could be completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, how, how did you feel, Matt, about the fact that people weren't, didn't find out what they could upgrade Strange Solution to until towards the end of the, the cycle? You know, were, were there any questions about when you wanted to put that reveal into yeah. the cycle? Yeah, definitely. It was tough, actually. It was a really tough decision because the longer you hold out, the more you, uh, the more you run the risk of, you know, disappointing people when it, when it finally releases. And thankfully, that's not what happened as far as I know. But we also didn't want to do it too early because if we did it too early, then you're not really making like full, uh, you're not taking full advantage of the mechanic, I feel. Yeah. We also didn't have a lot of data on how quickly people could or would want to complete that that action on the strange solution because I, I knew some playtesters didn't complete it until the third or fourth scenario so for them they didn't wait very long yeah my in my rex campaign i completed it in where doom awaits right, right. <laughs> I, like saw yeah. it repeatedly and had it just i had amnesia as my weakness so i lost it out of my hand a couple of times there were a couple of games i just didn't see it yeah and like i've been doing well other ways but the first chance I got to upgrade it was 
like fortunately when I knew what the upgrade was. Right. But I had been trying for six scenarios before that <laughs> and failing. Yeah. That's what I think elevates it as a mechanic is that now that we know, you still have to pass the test as exactly as you are basically parroting back to you what you said. But you Yeah. You can't just go, right, well I'm gonna play a seeker this time and I'm definitely gonna take this version of the strange solution because that might not happen. You might you might just not find the strange solution or not have the time to to solve it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the toughest part for us, though, was players at that point didn't even know it was going to be an upgraded card. So there was all this speculation on what you know what the note in the campaign log is going to mean narratively or what it's going to mean for the cycle. And that was the toughest part for me because I'm sitting here biting my nails thinking it's not even a... <laughs> it's, a, it's a player card, guys, but I can't yeah. say that. So that was that was tough for me. And I, I think in the end, I think players are happy that it's a player card because it means that they can use it in any cycle. And for me, it means I don't have to come up with a reason for the strange solution to exist in every single campaign moving forward, um, like narratively. Yeah, it felt like there was always a voice of reason in any of those conversations online. <laughs> there was at least one person saying... Well, it is a player card, so probably it will have a player card effect. Right. And that, that was always my, my, my suggestion or my, my thoughts. Because, I mean, with an LCG, you normally want all the cards, all the player cards to be usable all the time. So bringing out the strange solution quite early then confuses people who come to it later and put it in their decks and it doesn't do anything. Right, right. Or maybe in cycle five... Uh, someone starts playing in cycle five without having any of the previous ones, and they see a note in their campaign uh, guide that says, if you identified the solution, and they're like, what? What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> that, that could be yeah. very confusing. Uh, so I, I think yeah. that the way we did it was the correct way, but it was definitely tough uh, to listen to everyone speculate because I wasn't sure how it was going to be revealed. And also, like, there are some characters who can take the level zero strange solution, but cannot take the level four upgraded versions. Yeah. So I was worried yeah. about that. I was worried that there'd be a lot of people who put it into a Jenny deck. And then when the level four version came out, they, you know, would maybe be upset that they couldn't take the level four version. Luckily, I don't think that happened all too much because, you know, seekers like seeker cards. So I think most people who took that are <laughs> seekers. <laughs> Yeah, particularly with that Intellect 4 test on the card. Right, yeah, exactly. Worst case scenario, you swap it out. Really not that much harm done. But uh, it was it was definitely still a worry of mine. So we've looked at Rogue, Seeker, and Survivor. Uh, that leaves us uh, blue and purple. Yep. It felt with Mystic, and Peter and I were talking about this in last week's episode, that the one of the themes with the Mystic pool was higher and higher... Uh, level spells but they were higher xp versions of spells we've already seen yeah so it wasn't just about throwing in weirder and wonderfuler spells it was actually about upgrading the kind of core willpower replacement effects that seemed to be one of the hallmarks of mystic yeah we that i imagine was in was intentional but where does that come from as an idea um that came from the idea that mystics want to they're constantly looking for the next upgrade that that was kind of what we wanted mystics to feel like and that's a theme that will continue to grow over time as the card pool is only so big. But we really want Mystics to feel like experience hungry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, I, cons yeah. I, I constantly want the next version of my spell. And I have a bunch of different spells. And I constantly want the next version of all of them. So 
they're the characters who, ideally, they're the characters who, in a three- or four-player game, are saying, hey, guys, I know we can complete the scenario right now, but let's go get this Victory 1 location first. Hey, guys, yeah. I know we can complete the scenario right now, but let's go kill that Victory 1 enemy first. Or let's or, delve, let's, or, yeah, let's exactly. delve too let's, deep uh, Let's play, let's play deep, delve too deep, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we wanted Mystics to feel like they're always, they always, always, always want more experience. And I think the easiest way to do that was to have, you know, higher level versions of all of these staple spells that they that they want. One of the the interesting side effects of that, though, is that as we said in our previous episode, you can get to the end of the campaign as Agnes, and you'd still only have two copies of Shriveling in your deck, but you might have spent ten XP on them, right. and maybe you spent another four XP on on two Song of the Dead, say, to build up your kind of combat potential, but that. That's quite different from Guardian, where you could have been adding more and more weapons that are stronger and stronger without actually, you know, just filling out how many weapons you have in your deck. So I yeah. think it, it leads to a certain fragility within the mystic pool that if, you know, you have to discard some cards from your hand or your deck, you might miss your two copies of Shriveling by chance. There's still that kind of glass cannon nature to the to the faction. I think it's it's, it's an interesting aspect to mystic that they're... Their, their strength, the core conflict, is is turning their willpower into something they can use to help you, you know, win the scenario. Right. But they're reliant on their cards to do that. So if you don't have the right cards, you're feeling relatively helpless as the mystic. So you want to find them. <laughs> you can't fight until you've got your your shriveling on your song of the dead. You can't evade until you've got your blinding light, and you've got some tricks to help you uh, to investigate. But again, they're maybe limited, or they're they're only a few cards. Yeah, the the basic tension of playing Mystic should should feel like if I get all of my tricks, I can do everything. But if I if I can't get all my tricks, or if I don't have time, or if I lose them for whatever reason, uh, then I I have to sacrifice that element of gameplay. Yeah, and then you're just a waitress with a fire axe, <laughs> trying right. your best, and a stray cat, trying yeah. your best to stay alive. Yeah, but luckily they have other strengths too, such as being able to resist the treacheries that the deck throws at you a lot better than I think anyone else. So Yeah, definitely. And and the other thing we saw in Dunwich is this increased interaction with the special tokens of, in the Chaos Bag. So we saw Defiance, the Jewel of Aureolus as well, these particular cards that are starting to play off drawing certain tokens. And of course, we, we met our first non-Agnes mystic, Jim. Yeah. And... Jim makes you think about those chaos tokens completely differently because for Agnes, often she wants those tokens because they might have something to do with horror for her, depending on what she's testing or how she's doing it. But Jim, he's not using horror in the same way and his response to seeing a lot of the tokens seems different. Obviously, the obvious one is getting a skull for his trumpet and getting a skull for his ability. So that that felt a really nice detail within Mystics. Is that something that you want to carry on as the card pool grows. Yeah, definitely. The The important thing with Mystics is that the Chaos symbols matter, the Chaos tokens matter. Whether they like it or whether they dislike it, that's kind of like up to the deck that you build. So some Mystic decks are going to hate drawing Chaos tokens and their whole shtick will be trying to avoid it as, as much as physically possible. Whereas some other Mystic decks might love drawing those symbols and might seek to draw them as often as possible. And that's something that will continue to grow within the card pool, for sure. 
That's great. Yeah, I love this idea of the sort of the allure or the repulsion of those kind of darker elements within the chaos bag. Yeah, it'd be great. It makes it interesting when you play Jim in, in some of the, the pod scenarios that you've got, I think Carnival maybe has three skulls in it. Yeah. So it, he immediately feels better and more reliable when you're playing those. So you can see, I, I'm, I'm not going to assume future campaigns have got the same campaign pool. So you'll, you'll see these powers fluctuating in their usefulness as we go through. Yeah, yeah. And having players think critically about the chaos bag is definitely a good thing. If they're if they're thinking, well, there's three skulls in there, maybe I should play Jim. That's a very interesting hiccup in the decision-making process, <laughs> which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the flip side to something like a rogue with lucky dice, where you're just saying to yourself, as long as it's not a tentacle, I'm going to pay my way through. It's sort of like you're just keeping it at arm's length and throwing resources at it until the result comes up that you want, which yeah. is, is so different from that kind of uh, looking it full in the face as a mystic. I like to think of Lucky Dice as just bribing the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, for, for all of us, talking about the sort of the gambling element of rogue i mean a lot of it is is the cheating element of rogue right <laughs> it's it's not quite a gamble with yeah rogues don't play fair it's interesting that that's their yeah like you say their trick themed cards or the gambling themed cards are about swinging the odds in your favor through maybe underhand underhand uh, methods like yeah. sure gamble it's a gamble that you know you're going to win right exactly yeah well, should we talk about Guardian then briefly? Yeah, as well? I was just—I was just thinking about you know talking about playing fair. If, <laughs> if there's ever a clean-cut, selfless uh, faction, it's Guardian. But I guess one of the interesting things about Guardian is that they, in the core set, that they felt more like a a fighting faction. So they were the ones with the guns and the knives on the front lines. Yeah. But maybe. During the cycle, we've seen more cards which are indicating they should be protecting the other players rather than just fighting. Is that is that would you say that's fair? Yeah, definitely, and that's that's definitely intentional. There's moving forward, there'll definitely be multiple types of guardian decks that you'll see, or or you know mixtures of the two, of course. Guardians are the best at confronting the monsters straight up and fighting them, but they're also the best at protecting the rest of the group if you're playing multiplayer preventing everyone else from dying, healing them, cancelling damage and sanity, and also just uh, selflessness in, in general, uh, sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from Rogue, who are very, perhaps, selfish in their card pool. Um, so I could, I could in the future, pr- potentially see Guardian uh, decks that don't really care about fighting. They're maybe just, like, full 100% support. Or trying to. You, you've been tank. listening to the podcast "Drawn to the Flame," <laughs> where Peter keeps talking about his his Doctor Guardian that he's hoping to see. Um, and another thing that Peter said a few times, and listeners, you'll remember this, is that the the Guardian card pool re- really feels like a multiplayer pool. So you've got leadership that does better things to to other investigators than it does to you. There's blackjack. There's taunt and teamwork. Stand together. There's, Stand together. Yep. Um, there's even the, the Springfield rifle that yep, yep. needs some way of keeping an enemy at arm's length. Whether that's another investigator is a slightly different matter. That's obviously intentional. Is that always going to be the case that guardians are going to want to be the sort of the multiplayer choice? 
Not necessarily. Uh, I, I think all of the classes, save for maybe Rogue, will eventually get... Well, no, that's not true. All of the classes will certainly get some multiplayer-focused cards or cards that uh, that are perhaps a little bit better in multiplayer. Or the opposite end, too. You might get cards that are better in solo, for sure, in all of the classes. But thematically, Guardians are... I mean, just by the very nature of their name, their namesake is that they are the ones protecting and supporting the rest of the group. And there's a, there's a certain player, there's like a power fantasy that is... I want to help everyone else. And oh no, you're, Gar- des- you're describing me now. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and me to an extent too. I play MMOs a lot, and in MMOs, one of my favorite classes to play is the healer, um, yeah, or the, priest, the yeah. bard, like the power multiplier character who just stands in the center of the group and buffs everyone. And uh, I know that I'm not, you know, alone in that regard. Uh, so those are the cards that are there for those style of players. I, I really like just hanging back and supporting everyone, or maybe not hanging back, maybe taking the initiative and leading by example, and that's where all those other cards come in, for sure. That's great. It's so nice to have that as a feature of the of a cooperative game, that there are, there are cards that really remind you that you're playing a cooperative game, so it's not three or four players around the table all doing their solitaire thing and maybe just committing a card or two to help each other. It's, you know, one player who's really actively invested in the other investigators and in, you know, being near them, standing in front of them to help them, all of these kind of things. I mean, some of my favourite moments in this campaign have been where we've been standing and, you know, Daisy's got a monster on her and then Skids over here is, is struggling as well. And Zoe just says, right, let me sort this out. <laughs> you know, throws down taunt and sucks yeah. everyone, up, sucks all the monsters up, and just goes to town with a machete. Yeah, definitely. So, so um, looking a bit broader at the player cards, are there any that you're particularly proud of in this cycle? Definitely, there's a few. Um, I'm, I really like uh, Dark Horse. That's one of those key survivor cards that I think we will see a lot of decks revolving around in the future. Because just by its very nature, it changes the way that you approach your deck and it changes the way that you approach the game as you're playing. As soon as you put it on the table, it really changes everything. And those are some of, some of the most exciting cards to me. Yeah, players who've wanted to rejig their deck almost entirely once Dark Horse came out. Right. Because it, it it's a, a deck-defining card, isn't it? Right, right. And, and obviously not every card can be that that deck-defining card, right? You can't have 30 cards that are all deck-defining. <laughs> uh, but that's one that I'm particularly proud of because I, I think it nails the Survivor theme, and it's also pretty well-balanced. I think yeah. it, 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 it's a really interesting card. I, I played with it a bit in my Zoe deck, mm-hmm. um, but actually I, when I got towards the end of the cycle, I found it, it, it didn't quite fit with a lot of the other cards I had. That's because you kept taunting all those enemies, Peter, and getting <laughs> resources. <laughs> well, yeah, but you just spend it all on the fire axe, don't you? <laughs> But I, I think it's yeah. There's there's a lot of potential there, and I, I've already got some decks in my head. I know the Mythos Busters guys planned an Agnes deck with it in that I've, it's on my list of ones to try in the in mm-hmm. the near future. Yeah. How about cards? Not just mechanically interesting, but ones you feel are maybe thematically very good, or you've managed to capture the theme very well in the mechanics. For sure. Uh, well, I really like I'm out of here for <laughs> for for that sort of thematic like. Well, I know you guys are in trouble, but uh, I'm bailing, so sorry about that. Yeah, that that sort of rogue. We theme. got some right. 
right to the end of our first playthrough of Lost in Time and Space, and I got wormholed twice in a row, two different turns, <laughs> uh, and we were kind of sitting around, because I was on like one horror away from, from being defeated, right. and we were kind of just like in heads in our hands thinking, how can we get me out of here without taking, taking more damage? And then Andy piped up saying, oh, you know what would be really useful? Uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love that, that card just for the, the fun stories that can be told from it. It it also just forces you as a player to, to look again at something that, you know, okay, well, there's the resign location, cool, you know, let's play on. If you've got I'm out of here in your your deck, weirdly, you don't need to pay attention to where resign locations are, but mm-hmm. just the fact that you have it means that you do pay attention to that because you're the person that doesn't need to be there and it it sort of shines a light on an aspect of the game that maybe most players are just ignoring because most people don't set out to play a scenario with a plan of resigning at some point. They're normally trying to achieve whatever their objectives are. But I'm out of here sort of says you can do that even more explicitly because you can leave more easily than you would otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like it as well. How about encounter cards? Are there any that you're particularly proud of? Oh, geez, yes. Uh, there definitely are, but I have to think. Uh, oh, Kidnapped is probably oh, one yes. of my favorite cards <laughs> in the entire cycle. Probably one of the most like story generating cards. Yeah, definitely. And it's such a fun uh, moment. That moment that you realize that this treachery card isn't just hurting you right now. It might be hurting you, you know, for the rest of the campaign. It's definitely one of the scariest uh, treachery cards to draw because it has such potential. It's interesting that because we we talked about the crazed Shoggoth, which yeah. it, it the the text on that doesn't change how it works in the game you're playing. It just <laughs> makes it scarier for the long run because you're like yeah. Oh, yeah if by some chance he does it's not just a trauma that's it I'm gone right yeah for sure what else uh, let's see you're not allowed to say beyond the veil why not I do like beyond <laughs> the veil a lot <laughs> yeah no, I, I should, love should, it should too, we talk but... about that briefly because I think. It's Beyond the Veil is one of the defining cards of the cycle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it gives some teeth to all of those milling effects. Uh, so here's here's one of those moments where I will talk about um, what it... I, actually, I don't even remember what it used to do previously to its current design. But there was a moment, play t- very, very early playtesting, like the first two scenarios. I think it was extracurricular activity because that card is uh, in that set. And... Uh, some of my playtesters were saying, yeah, I like this middle mechanic. I think it's cool that it's discarding cards from your deck, but, you know, in the long run, it's not going to kill me. And that made me think, aha, but <laughs> what if it killed you? <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the moment I, like, ran back to my PC and I, I jotted down. Uh, I, th- I think at, at first I just said, you know, it kills you. And then I changed it to take 10 damage because I thought that was more fun. Because you could potentially avoid it, you know? Yeah, most often that kills you. Right. <laughs> that is one of my favorite cards in the cycle. I, I love how it encourages the, the, the planning as an investigator. If you're a seeker, you're like, well, I'm going to just get through my deck once before I even see that card. Right. And I'll probably be set up. But if you're a guardian, you're like, well, I'll get down Xavier and make sure that I've played emergency aid and healed myself. And I'll just take it on the chin right. and there's this sort of like there are ways of dealing with it that aren't just well you're gonna die and it makes makes those last few turns so nail-biting as well as you're down to like you know maybe six or seven cards in your deck 
and you're you're really thinking like right how much more can i do before i have to get out of here yeah and my my favorite is when you have maybe six or seven cards in your deck and one of them and you, you know you know your deck well enough that you know that the card you need is one of those yeah the yeah. card that like you need right now and you have like three actions you're like do i dig for it or like maybe it's on the bottom uh i don't know what to do <laughs> that happened to him yeah. my friend was in this exact situation but yeah. he was uh he was wendy so the card he was looking for was the uh, necklace the pendant the amulet yeah the amulet that's it yeah um and he knew it was somewhere in those last few cards but if it was the last card it's like not that helpful it's still very it's still gonna die <laughs> yeah and i, ha- I had a, a, a wreck situation where rex's curse got shuffled back into his deck when he had a deck of one so he then had a deck of two. <laughs> oh no <laughs> and, that's funny uh, he hadn't got beyond the veil but he was like well i need to draw both of these cards because i need to get my deck back before i get hit by beyond the veil but you know, one of them is going to be his weakness. It's like, oh, hang on, do I do my tests first and make sure that I don't have Beyond the Veil out? Uh, not Beyond the Veil, uh, Rex's Curse out. And yeah, it was it was really fun, sort of weird bit of where he had to embrace his curse and grab it. So I guess the other thing about encounters, I think Frank and I have talked about this a few times. In, in other LCGs, you're typically... I Actually, well, not Lord of the Rings, but in Netrunner, which I'm used to, you might have cards which are designed to counter other cards in other players' decks. So you have this silver bullet battle. But with with Arkham, you've got the encounter deck, which you can use. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you use the encounter deck, maybe as that a tool to balance player cards if ever they become, some cards become dominating? Uh, yeah, definitely. And that's actually something that we've done a little bit in this cycle too. Again, I was kind of flying blind designing a lot of this cycle because the game hadn't come out yet so it was tough to tell you know what what silver bullets might be needed um but there are a few cards like the conglomeration of spheres that eats up melee weapons um, that's just so what i was thinking your beloved yeah, machete yeah um or likewise the avian thrall who's really hard to hit unless you're using a gun or a spell those are two examples of of that sort of thing that's exactly the example i would have used and and Interestingly, I think I think you called that one right because going into Dunwich, my you know we had these five new investigators that could all take cards, level zero cards from across you know the factions, right? And Machete was one of those cards that you know I built a Jenny deck and I was like, oh well, I'll take two Machete because it's such a strong weapon. Yeah, yeah. And I like the rogue weapons, but you know Machete, it's trusty. I've played through the core set with it. You know, I know what it, I know what it does. It's good. And then of course you go into House Always Wins, and suddenly the Machete is not as useful as you thought it was. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember out of the core set, everyone was saying, why would you play anything other than Machete? But that's certainly not the feeling now we've seen seen the cycle. Yeah, so that's that's a, a really good example of that, that sort of design. And that's hard to do, too, in a cooperative game because players can tweak their deck with the knowledge. Like, they have full knowledge once you've played the scenario of what's in it. Um, and that's not the way it is in a competitive game. If, if me and you sit down and play Netrunner right now, you don't know what's in my deck. So that's a tough thing to do because you can you can silver bullet my silver bullet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. You know the collaboration of spheres in the deck. All right, well, now you're just going to put in firearms. And it's cool that that's a consideration, but it, it makes it a little tough to design encounter cards sometimes. I think it's it's better in a campaign game like this because I can throw some cards at you in this scenario and some different cards at you in this scenario that counter different strategies and so you force people to be more adaptable. 
Right, right. And to and to include all of the answers in their deck rather than because you can't rebuild your deck in between scenarios. It really changes a lot. It was striking playing extracurricular activity this morning, again, having recently played Lost in Time and Space, that there are some of the same encounter sets in Scenario 1 and Scenario 8, but they obviously work in different ways. But mm-hmm. as a player now with that knowledge, you're thinking, wow, if, if I can't handle it now in Scenario 1, I need to work towards having a solution by Scenario 8. Like The information is there for the players to actually work out what challenges they're going to face if they pay attention early on. And I really like that. I like the callback to the beginning of the scenario happening at the end, but also, yeah, the the challenges, some of them change, but some of them stay the same. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the strengths of the encounter set design that Nate did in Lord of the Rings, that you you end up becoming uh, familiar with some of these cards, but then some of the cards in each scenario can sort of give them a new spin. So you're you're used to visions of futures past and beyond the veil by the time you get to scenario eight but uh everything else going on in that scenario might like completely change the nature of those cards i think it's really cool yeah 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 i guess i guess the the related question the related question i had was do you find that then having encounter sets just in one scenario allows you to be a bit more creative with your mechanics so you could put in something I don't know, like a player, say you could even put in a player card which had some quite powerful mechanic and just see how it works in that one scenario without having to worry about imbalancing the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like Carnival and Curse of the Ruguru are strong in that they, they're just one set of cards. I don't have to worry about those cards interacting with any other scenario. So there's, there's certainly like pros and cons to both approaches. Uh, I mean, in, in the long run, we, we need the encounter sets because the deluxe box throws so many encounter cards at us that we can then design all of the other scenarios with such a limited space uh, of 60 cards in each pack. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, do you do the allocation of cards in in the Mythos packs as well? Uh, do, do you d- design everything in a big group and then divide them up? Or the other player cards? One of the things that Peter noticed was that it sometimes felt like the player cards we got in a Mythos pack also related to the scenario that we were about to play. <laughs> yeah, we we do split them up, but that splitting them up changes constantly over time because as you probably have noticed, the number of player cards in each pack is not always the same. Um, yeah. But we do want to keep a certain balance. So it can be really tricky sometimes because we'll say, uh, oh, I really want this player card to go in this pack because it works really well in that pack. But, oh, now there's four guardian cards in that pack. We can't have four guardian cards in that pack. All right, so let's move this card over here. Oh, but now that pack has 62 cards. We can't have 62 cards in a pack. So it's 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 like a uh, it's like a logic puzzle. And you managed to bring out the the six the six packs in the cycle where each pack had three. Uh, each faction either had two, mostly two cards, and sometimes three. Yeah, yeah. But you managed to make it that it worked out that it wasn't it wasn't sort of six survivor cards this pack and then none for the next two or anything like that so right. it seemed it seemed to tessellate quite nicely yeah and you know in the long run it's it's always doable there's never going to be a configuration that just doesn't work at all but there will sometimes be occasionally awkward cards that go into a pack like a good example is uh, i'm out of here which goes into the essex county express a scenario which you cannot resign from yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's an awkward card to go into that pack, but, you know, just the way that everything worked out, that's how it ended up. Um, it was funny, though. 
Yeah, there was. There, there are some. There are some where you think, oh, if only I had this card a couple of scenarios ago, and there are others that we definitely scratched our head about and thought, well, when will this ever be useful? <laughs> and then you, then you go, oh wait, hang on, you know, like a chance encounter I loved because I thought, like, well, yeah, I could reuse some allies, but I'm not sure about this. And then the following pack, we received uh, the red gloved man, right. and an idea was born. If it bleeds was the one that that really got to me about this because when when I saw the card before I played the scenario, mm-hmm. I couldn't think really think of an example where it would be that good that killing whatever the monster was wasn't just going to end the scenario. But then of course that comes in the pack with five monsters you have to kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That each deal two horror a piece, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. Right. So. Right. That's a that's a fun card too, just for the the theme of it. It's what, yeah, it's one of my favourite cards actually. Um, anything which has got a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger quote on it. <laughs> I love the cards that are quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Peter liked if it bleeds so much that he took a photo of the art without the card text and sent it to me before I'd seen the card. Nice. Just <laughs> nice. it had a fire axe on it. <laughs> yeah. Or I think it's like a stump of a fire axe, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So it's we've we've started to talk about scenarios in our talking about player cards. So we're gonna we're gonna drift into that a little bit. And I uh, saw recently that you said that you're a fan of Duelist, the digital collectible card game. That uh, for our listeners that don't know, it's a little bit like a Hearthstone or a Magic style game where you have cards in your hand and they most of them turn into minions. But what sets Duelist apart is that it also has a nine by five board. So when you play a minion, they go onto the board and you can move them around and there's a sort of chess-like tactical element to it. And I love Duelist. I've played quite a lot of Duelist. And the wonderful thing I think about Duelist is that the board isn't really a gimmick. It becomes an intrinsic feature of the game. So your deck building choices affect what you can do on the board and the board changes how you actually think about deck building. Yeah. So I know that you like Duelist as well. How I suppose my question is about gimmicks and not being gimmicky. And how did you break down what you wanted the scenarios to be in Dunwich and make sure that they didn't just feel like gimmicks? That's a good question. So I would say the first thing that we did when we started working on the Dunwich Legacy, and again, this was like while we were still designing the court set too, was we mapped out a bunch of neat maps, actually, Kind of like, oh, you know what would be cool? A scenario where all the locations are a straight line. You know what I mean? Or, you know what would be cool? A location where the scenarios are a one-way circle. Right? And we mapped yeah. out, or there's a there's a hub in the middle, and like it's a wheel, and there's spokes going out. You know, we mapped out a bunch of different location maps. And um, then we sort of assigned themes to them. And then we arrayed them in a basic story structure. So... The, the single file line of locations became a train. And then the yeah. train became a way to get from Arkham to Dunwich. The uh, the single the one-way circle became Carnival of Venice because we thought it felt like a parade. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Yeah. 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 So all of these different... And then, you know, one of those was, oh, we should make a scenario where the locations are just appearing and disappearing randomly with no sort of sense of uh of of scale where it's just it's all over the map and um that became lost in time and space because it what else could it be right yeah yeah so that that was like the basic structure of how 
a lot of those uh, those maps came into existence and how a lot of the scenarios were formed around them. That's great. I think one of the things that's so good about Essex is you've had three scenarios before that that are fairly open right. and there's you can do some interesting things with movement and the scenarios that follow it also have at least a bit of mobility but Essex really targets that and says there's not mobility we're going to really funnel you down one route I think it's why it's caught out some players as well that there's there's a certain amount of a sort of uh, a regimented way that you have to to break through that scenario people have been taken aback I think by being punished for not getting on with doing that. I love it. I think it's a good scenario. <laughs> yeah, I like Essex. You, way back in the day, speaking about liking Essex, we chatted and I said that I had, had just played Blood on the Altar and, and loved it. And you said to me that you were glad I'd loved it and it was your second favourite scenario mm-hmm. in the cycle. Why is Blood on the Altar your second favourite and what's your favourite? Yeah, it's, I love Blood on the Altar. Uh, it's definitely... If it's not my second favorite, it is my favorite. It's really, really close. It might actually have transitioned <laughs> since we talked that that one day from second favorite since to my fed, favorite. You've <laughs> fed on all of the stories of people having Duke kidnapped, right. and yeah, or it's made you happy. Leo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, the, I think the reasons why I like that scenario are twofold. One, I really like the sacrifice, uh, the pool of sacrifices. I think it it puts a timer on the quest that is much more dramatic than uh, any of the the quests up until that point. It, like, it gives you stakes, real stakes, that you care about. Because by now you've you've traveled with these characters for uh, for a few scenarios, and not just the character himself, but the card. You like that card. Dr. Morgan, ah, oh, he's so good. I want him in my deck. The second that uh, that the threat is posed to you that he might be gone forever if you don't act quickly... It really puts the pressure on. It's like an inverse Midnight Masks, isn't it? Midnight Masks yeah. is how many can you get? Right. And this is how many can the game get from yeah, you if yeah. you don't put your skates on. Yeah, it's it's how many can you save and you really do want to save them. They're not just... Um, it's not like uh, random townspeople with no name that's like, oh, you saved three townsfolk. You know what I mean? They're like yeah. real people that you kind of care about. So I like it for that. I also like it because it's it forms like the it's like the end of chapter one almost of the Dunwich Legacy. Uh, it, it's the culmination of the last four scenarios leading up to it. Um, so it, it it's kind of like a um, well it, it is like the midpoint of the campaign, but it serves as a rallying point I think for the community. And when it came out, a lot of people were talking about. Oh, how many? How many did you save? Who's who got sacrificed for you? Who survived? And that was really interesting yeah, for me yeah. to watch. Uh, and that's around the time that we released that poll online as well, of having people fill out like, you know, where are you in the campaign? What what happens for you? How many trauma do you have? That sort of thing. I, I definitely remember there being a few dropped jaws about like these allies are just gone. That's it. So Milan, yeah, you had Milan in your deck. You don't anymore. Find something else to put in instead. And I know I remember, definitely remember a few people being quite surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. Most I, I, like when you're told that you can include a card in your deck, your first thought is, "Cool, it's mine now." You know, you you, you don't think maybe yeah. the deck can take it away from you. That's that's something that other games just don't do very often. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a moment where the game is sort of reaching out across the table and 
directly affecting you and your choices and i think that that's quite a powerful experience yeah i also really like the the setting uh it's the first time that you actually get to dunwich so you're you're finally you're like finally i'm actually in dunwich you know what i mean uh in a, in a campaign called the dunwich legacy uh so it's a it's a cool moment where you uh you've reached the namesake of the campaign almost you know what i mean yeah yeah it's that moment in a film right where the film is it has a, a title named on a place and and the camera lingers on the the sign saying welcome to yeah. whatever and you go okay that's it's cool. also uh actually that reminds me of um uh going back a second i'm a big fan of the silent hill games yeah and uh, yeah yeah i can see where you're going here, yeah. yeah silent hill 3 if i'm remembering correctly you don't start in silent hill you start in a completely different town and you eventually make it to silent hill and it's it's actually a good like i want to say halfway maybe third of the way through the game and by by now the game is pretty scary but when you get to silent hill that's when stuff really kicks into high gear and it becomes an absolutely terrifying game and that's kind of how i wanted it to feel getting to dunwich finally yeah, I was like, yes, I've made it to Dunwich. And then I think my follow-up point was, why are there so many birds here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Whippoorwill definitely MVP of the encounter deck for my runs. Just Oh, God, so annoying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like the story text talking about the Whippoorwills. And like, if you if you get the resolution where everyone is sacrificed, they just uh, they just leave satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for all the deaths, and they just fly away, and you feel really bad. <laughs> yeah. If only they weren't. They, they then didn't appear in Undimension and Unseen. I'd be okay <laughs> with that. Right. <laughs> well, you still haven't died yet, so you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is the, is there another particular scenario of this cycle that is is competing with Blood on the Altar for you in terms of one that you're particularly happy with how it turned out? Yeah. That that would that would be Lost in Time and Space. Absolutely love Lost in Time and Space. I love you start on one location and you're thinking, where do I go? And all the all the other locations are in the deck and you have to sort of find them. But they, they also sort of pop up randomly too. And figuring out how they all connect and how to get from one to another um, and how to get back or maybe you can't get back, that's oh, yeah, really yeah. fun for me. You feel like you're... The ground's moving underneath your feet. You're never quite sure what's what's going to be where and where you're going to be able to move to next turn. Yeah, yeah. I, I really wanted it to feel like you were lost. It, like, it's not just called Lost in Time and Space because that's what it was called in the board game, you know? Uh, I wanted it to be like, no, you are lost. You are lost in time and space, you know? Um, and writing, writing the descriptions for all of those uh, art pieces was fun, too, because they are so, so crazy and alien and and uh and strange and otherworldly yeah you find as a player that you're sitting back reading out you know a little bit of of description going wait what yeah and just okay. sort of marveling like your investigator would be as a prismatic cascade flies right. past your face or whatever it is okay i i am straight up in an escher painting right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i think it was, it's also a surprising climax from after where doom awaits that's uh you're starting at the bottom of the hill, get to the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. That you know, where do you go from 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 that, which felt so obviously building towards a, a particular conclusion, and mm-hmm. it was so satisfying to open Lost in Time and Space and be. I was like, so what's the map? Let me let me find out what it, it was. Like one location, right, like, right. Oh, 
What? Oh, ah, interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I kind of felt going into it like making a map for this scenario would have been doing it in injustice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's amazing that you didn't because it's always going to be different every time people play. Even if the, the locations might fit together in much the same way, the, the order that they come out in won't be the same. Yeah. That'll be, yeah, that'll be fantastic. Just a, a really small question. Is it intentional that in extracurricular activity and Lost in Time and Space, the investigators have a way of discarding cards off the encounter deck, just as the encounter deck has a way of discarding cards off the investigator decks? <laughs> uh, I would say it's more of a happy accident. That um, okay. I think in Lost in Time and Space, that, that might not have always been the case, but the investigators needed a way to accelerate the locations entering play, because otherwise you're just kind of sitting in another dimension waiting yeah um, which yeah. which would make for a, a kind of boring first few turns i think it's really nice to put the power in the hands of the investigators as well if you right. don't have somewhere to go it's because you you need to commit more time to it yeah as opposed and, to going wait until the agenda advances or whatever it is yeah and it definitely makes sense that they are looking around you know you're not just standing there you're exploring you're finding roots by yourself as well but it, it does end up being a happy mirror to what the encounter deck is trying to do to you. So I do like that. I did that. That wasn't completely intentional, but it was something that afterwards I reflected on and went, that's neat. I like that. Yeah, it, <laughs> I really like I take a childish glee that when I've just hit a visions of future past and drawn a tentacle and lost five cards that I then, you know, spend a clue and go looking for jazz and go, you know, Anything you can do, I can do back and take some cards off that. So, yeah. yeah, too bad you don't have a player card that says when the encounter card runs out of, uh, when the encounter deck runs out of cards, you win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, what's the opposite of beyond the veil? This side of the veil? Yeah, yeah over here. <laughs> well, should we talk briefly about the other, in, the other scenarios as well? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Well, we've talked briefly about extracurricular activities haven't we? Was it a particular headache to design them so they could be done either way round, or was that that a fun challenge? Uh, can't it be both? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was definitely a fun challenge, especially because it was something that we knew we wanted to do from the very beginning. So, luckily, we designed it with that in mind. It wasn't something that we kind of added on later on, uh, like late in the process. The toughest part was trying to balance it in such a way that there wasn't an obvious route. You know, like, oh, I'll always do this one first. If you do the other one first, you're dumb. You know what I mean? Like, we, we really wanted to avoid that. And that was tough because the scenarios were so different from one another that uh, making making that choice tough on replays, that was a challenge, for sure. Yeah, I, I think for, for what it's worth, you, you've, you've managed to do that quite well. I think especially in terms of playing the scenarios themselves. I, I wouldn't necessarily pick one combination as harder or easier than the other. Yeah. Uh, personally, I like to do extracurricular activities first because I feel like it sets up the um, the campaign like uh, narratively. Um, it's got that... Uh, it's very quiet. It's very foreboding. And then moving from there to The House Always Wins, The House Always Wins a bit more chaotic and a lot more raucous. Um, and that feels like a, a second scenario more to me personally when I play at home. And, and people have pointed out that if you're introducing new players to the game, 
House Always Wins is not always the best example because you yeah. go, this is how you investigate, and then you show them House Always Wins, and there is the La Bella Luna, but after that, the investigation rules kind of go out the window, and it's yeah, can be kind of all over the place, and you've got to get your head around aloof as well. Yeah, I think yeah. House Always Wins is is probably one of my favourites in the cycle. Awesome. I I remember the f- first time I played it because we we actually did we did House Always Wins first, so it was the first you know non core scenario I played. Mm-hmm. And I remember you flip over that card, and it says you know all the enemies have got aloof, and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I believe uh, aloof wasn't even used in the core set scenarios, right? Yeah, yeah I, I, we 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 had played Rougarou, which uses aloof, right? Right. But it, that's a that's a very different feel to to this. I think it feels a lot like a like a social investigation, if you see yeah. what I mean. So you you have a feel of these criminals are, are closing in on you at various points and like circulating through the crowds and slowly getting closer. Is this like a framework we might see in the future for similar investigations? or uh, Possibly. I won't say definitively one way or the other, but we do want to allow the game system to have, like you say, like social uh, investigations. And that's not always easy within the framework of the game. So Aloof is one tool that we have in our disposal. Clues being not necessarily just on the location, and like you know, you have to find a different way to gather the clues. That's another tool that we can use for that. And it's reminding me of Midnight Masks as well, where a whole host—I think four of the six cultists—have ways of dealing with them that aren't purely fighting as well. So, that, right, like it's great that the game has these ways where you can maybe reach a, a resolution that doesn't require you just to to chop everything up into small pieces. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in that case, it's interesting moving to Miskatonic Museum because that's less combat-based. There is combat in there because you're fighting a particular enemy. So did you make a conscious decision to do a single enemy scenario or did it? were you just like, oh, we've hardly got any in, we'll just have the one? Yeah, it was, it was definitely <laughs> intentional from the very beginning. We, um, I really wanted to experiment uh, a lot with this cycle and... Um, just do some things that players weren't expecting. Uh, like I said before, just trying to show off all the different things that the, the system can do as a foundation. So I, I wrote down, I remember I writing down like scenario three, one enemy in the deck. And then I came back to it later and I, and I thought, oh, how am I going to do that? <laughs> so obviously a recurring enemy, right? Because you can't just fight it once and only once. So it has to be an enemy that comes back. And then later on, I added, oh, it gets stronger every time it comes back. That's cool, because then if you're evading it and just, like, kind of dealing with it, like maybe you're playing Wendy and you're just evading it a lot, uh, then it it doesn't really get stronger over time. It's just always around, and that's interesting, and that's totally different from um, every time it spawns, you immediately kill it until it reaches a critical mass and becomes massive, like, 5-5 or 6, I think 6-5-6 or something, and, uh, or no, 5-6-5, and then it's a real terror, you know? Every time you kill it and, and do that, like, oh, I'll just, you know, vicious blow, I'll just do it in one hit. Each time you do that, it gets harder the next time. And right, I've right. played it before where the, the Zoe player has been like, leave it to me, I'll just deal with it. Yeah. And you're like, eh, don't <laughs> just deal with it, Zoe. Yeah. <laughs> Zoe knows yeah, what she's so doing, just, just, just let her handle it. That was definitely an intentional uh, design that um, I, I think turned out pretty well. Uh, but it does definitely 
turn the scenario into more of an investigation, which is cool because I think it gives this feeling of, uh, I, I remember when I was a kid, um, in Boy Scouts, we had this one, or no, Cub Scouts, uh, we had this, this one trip where we went to a museum in, I think, Boston, and uh, we were allowed to just run around the whole museum, and it was actually a sleepover thing, like, we slept in the museum. Wow. Yeah, and I remember it was a lot of fun, but it was also really creepy, because it was, you know, a museum at night, kind of like there was no one around, it was just us, and we were kind of given free reign within a certain, like area of the museum i forget the exact museum unfortunately but uh it was a long time ago but anyway yeah that 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 experience was uh something that i drew on just like the idea of walking through this dark kind of creepy uh museum with weird statues and exhibits that don't really make any sense because it's miskatonic museum and they have weird weird things going on um, and then there's one creature in the darkness stalking you throughout the whole thing. I, I really like that. Yeah, that some of the the cards in the Miskatonic Museum encounter set that you know will go and fetch the creature or will have a, a greater effect if it's at your location. Mm-hmm. That they add such a fantastic element of of fear in drawing that card. It's not you know like oh I've just drawn a, a nasty enemy I'll deal with this. It's yeah there's a particular level of of kind of malevolence there that's great so we go university club or club university museum and train and we've talked about essex a little bit Mm -hmm. you've talked about how you had these maps and that you were saying well i can fit this together to make a story or how were you worried about getting these different elements together as the sort of first half of the campaign and how you made them hang together as a story a little bit yeah when, whenever we worked on Lord of the Rings uh, cycle, the first thing that we did was we actually looked at a map of Middle Earth and we would go, we'd put little X's and dotted lines marking like the journey that the players are going to take. And that's not really the case in Arkham. It's, it's not as easy to do that sort of thing because Lord of the Rings is about a journey, but Arkham is about a mystery. So it's it's not about where you go, it's about what you're doing. So I guess the answer to your question is kind of like... <laughs> going from going from the the club to the museum to the train wasn't hard to design. What was hard to design was the why of like why am I going to the museum? Why am I going to the train? Why am I going to Dunwich now? That was the hardest part for me, especially especially because you can fail the scenario and still move on to the next one. That that's really yeah. tough, you know, because like sometimes. Sometimes I had to come up with a reason why if you fail, you're not just dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, one of the resolutions of Essex is a, a great example of that, right? Right, That it's right. not just that you've fallen off the bridge and, and died in that canyon. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's where th- this element of sort of investigator motivation, which really feeds off the uh, role-playing side of the game, becomes really important. And you've you've done something where there's this unity of time where the first three scenarios are all one night. So mm. that that adds an element of urgency that are, that isn't just you know six weeks later you decide to visit the the Clover Club. You know how's that going? Yeah, the, the, there is a sort of there is a sort of motor to the story that's inbuilt with the unity of time. That I think that lends it a certain amount of I want to say motivation, but maybe I just mean oomph. It just keeps it moving. Yeah, I think so. 
so I, I had a, had a, a nitty gritty detail question from the Essex County Express. Go for it. And, and feel free to answer this in whatever way makes you look the coolest. Uh, what, what, what was the deal with That's the luggage? That's what I usually do. <laughs> What's the deal with the luggage? Was this was it something that you'd meant to finish, or was it just a genius red herring? <laughs> I am very inclined to not give the answer as to preserve the mystery, but I, I will say that it was intentional. It wasn't something that we forgot. You know what I mean? I, I, it was a really nice touch, and again, for what it's worth, it totally worked on us where we saw that and we're like, <laughs> nope, no way. <laughs> but when you think about it log- logically, surely people have got bigger things to be worrying about when train cars are being sucked up through a hole in the sky than someone rippling through your luggage. Right. And my my favorite part about that is when you go back and you reflect on that decision, you think to yourself, of, of course it doesn't come back. To, like, who... How could it have, right? You know, like, is is the passenger going to show up and say, hey, you stole my luggage after, like, all of this crazy stuff just happened? Uh, probably not, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, there's certainly some stuff that, that could have come from it, but I, I like it better as a, uh, as a, as a, uh, a red herring. Um, and I think it's important to have those red herrings in there, too, because... That way, in the future, you know, in, for example, Carcosa Cycle, you're going to see some sort of remember command. And now you're going to reflect on the luggage and think, oh, man, I don't know. Is this going to be another red herring? Is this going to be important? I I don't know. So Gain t- 10 resources and draw four cards. You're like, ah, <laughs> right, yeah, do yeah. I have to remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You win the game. Remember that Matt is watching <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> I, I liked it for the motivation it gave for the stubborn detective in one of our campaigns. <laughs> but it was yeah. like an, another thing that he was on our trail about. That it's stubborn like that, detective is incredibly uh, stubborn, isn't he? Yeah. Have have either of you played uh, Chrono Trigger? Uh, I think. Uh, which one is that? <laughs> it's like an old Super Nintendo RPG by uh, SquareSoft. I think uh, I've not. No. Yes, there's I a, have played it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a moment in like the second chapter of the game or so where you're on trial, and you're on trial for all of the things that you did in the first part of the game, in like the very, very beginning when you didn't think that there were consequences to anything. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's kind of how I feel the stubborn detective uh, stories go. Like, all right, well, we broke into the museum. There's a dead guard in the museum, uh, and yeah. you know, then you yeah. then you went to the train. The train is like completely missing. What did you do to the train? Well, I, I saw someone someone I think maybe on Facebook had, their stubborn detective had showed up when they'd entered the edge of the universe, <laughs> which is about as stubborn as a detective can get, really. Right, right. And when you think about it from the detective's perspective, you're really suspicious, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That... I, I mean, it's just it's just great name as well. It's the fact that he's called stubborn that just works so well. It's not it's not that he's just called you know rogue detective. It's that he's it's right. that he's dogged in following you every single place you go. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I do like, uh, someone brought up uh, the mob enforcer who would chase you all the way to the edge of the universe for a measly $4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought that was very, very funny. <laughs> or it's, or maybe he's he's realized that he can keep fleecing you for this 
for this money right. time and time again and keep threatening you. He's got like a good blackmail thing going on. Yeah, he needs his fix. Well, we've talked about Blood on the Altar a bit. Shall we skip up to Undimensioned and Unseen? Yeah, I think so. I, actually, another one of my favourite scenarios. I really, really enjoyed this. I thought the the way the esoteric formula worked. Like Some of my favourite moments in the game is when we're all sitting around. We're, we're really trying to maths out... Uh, you know, we've got a turn, we've got three actions each, and we've got three monsters to deal with and then something else to do. So we sit and have a good 10-minute discussion about who's going where. And I felt Undimension and Unseen really played into that kind of style of playing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that scenario a lot because it's the it's the first one, I think, that draws, or maybe maybe the only one that draws like so heavily from the uh, source material. Um, because you're effectively doing exactly what Armitage, Morgan, and Rice did in the Dunwich Horror, just on a, on a maybe a larger scale because there's multiple of these creatures now. So I really that more than any of the other scenarios, I drew a lot of inspiration from the original source material there, which is you know especially considering like the source material, you don't really get it from Armitage and Rice's and Morgan's perspective. You're kind of watching it with Curtis Waitley and a bunch of other Dunwich citizens through a telescope, and he's just describing what's happening. Yeah. So seeing it up close is a lot different. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that's lovely about that scenario is there's this pull between are you chasing them or are they chasing you? And that the the random movement really puts you in the shoes of your investigators where you think that you're tracking it down and then suddenly it's on top of you and you're all scrambling to get out of there or scrambling to you know kill one and then another one arrives the card that allows you to spawn further broods mm-hmm. i can't remember its name off the top of my it's, head uh, it's not the, attractive. The, the creature's tracks creature's tracks yeah not attractive yeah. attention that the fact that it's a peril card yeah i've I think I've seen one person I played with pause for probably about three minutes, just in silence, <laughs> trying to work out what best to do. I think we were about to get these terraformers, but we hadn't yet. He'd not fought one of these broods before, so he didn't really know how the other ones would come up. And he was just, yeah, he was just sort of, he was studying the creature's tracks. He needed to work <laughs> out what they were, and he was stuck. It was, yeah, a wonderful uh, experience. That's awesome, yeah. Was this scenario designed to maybe be a bit of a self-balancing one because it gets theoretically it gets easier if you've done less well in blood on the altar yes yeah definitely it was important to me that there was some sort of catch-up mechanic in the campaign for if you've been uh like if you've failed every single scenario up until now um we don't want players to feel like well i might as well just start over the campaign at this point you know what i mean um like that's that's one of the worst feelings in a campaign game when you You've just been failing repeatedly, and the game has gotten harder as a result. You feel like you're being yeah. kicked while you're down. And while there definitely should be rewards for completing scenarios successfully and, and penalties for failing, at, at some point there needs to be a sort of a, a reset button where you, you can get some chance to catch up. And likewise, if you've been doing really, really well, this scenario becomes a nightmare. And the my favorite thing about that catch-up mechanic is that it actually integrates really, really well into the story of this uh, this campaign. Like the the Dunwich Horror is sitting in the Waitley shack or uh, farm, and they're feeding it, and it only breaks out because he dies and he's not there to feed it anymore, right? So yeah, you've been sacrificing people to these creatures 
they're they're satisfied. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna break free. But if you've saved everyone, they are not happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I playing play. I played a Roland Banks solo run through the campaign, and I was doing fine until Blood on the Altar, and mm-hmm. then everything that could go wrong went wrong. And <laughs> uh, I blame Whippoorwills. But one of the things that was interesting about that was I was really dreading Undimensioned and Unseen because I, I had some willpower boosting tools in my deck, but not many. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can be really hard. And actually get, doing badly in Blood on the Altar, which felt like a really big setback and ended me up with a trauma and I didn't have the powder and th- things like that, it actually meant that I, I got through Undimensioned and Unseen fairly well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it basically hit this point exactly as you say, where the the defeat in Blood on the Altar wasn't a, a bad enough to make me go like, well, the campaign's ruined. How am I possibly going to get through the next three scenarios? But also, it also weirdly gave me an impetus to kind of crack on with the scenario. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the, the campaign, yeah. It, it works. I think it works really well. I think it also just, for, for players, you want those twists and turns in the narrative that aren't right. simply like, did you smash this scenario? Well, smash this one then. Did you smash this one? You know, and... and if if all it is is about getting you know eight XP per scenario because you're just pounding them, yeah, that yeah, it, that can yeah become fairly linear. And there's a we toyed around with that a little bit too in the in the Night of the Zealot where like if you if you um, run away in the first scenario and you don't kill the ghoul priest, you don't have to decide between getting the zealot or getting the house. You get both of them. As, as a little yeah. bit of a gimme, like, oh, yeah, you're, the Zealot still trusts you because you didn't really have a choice in the matter, and the house is still standing, so you still have the house that you can go back to in the second scenario. I mean, obviously, you have the yeah. downside of the ghoul priest is still alive, which is <laughs> awful, but yeah. yeah. I, I, think yeah. It's, I think it was especially important, uh, especially right after Blood on the Altar, where defeat can be so dramatic and crushing, uh, losing all of those characters... For all of those decks that have have paid three XP for charisma because they have right. four or five yeah. allies in their deck, and then I yeah. was playing with someone where going into Undimensioned Unseen, he had two allies in his deck <laughs> and <Yeah>. charisma. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, uh, did I really need charisma? Like, yeah, yeah. these two lab assistants can both be out at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So we were playing through with. Uh... Kara, who is the uh, one of the designers on Mansion's second edition, and um, she's running a Jenny, Jenny and the Boys deck, as she likes to call it. Okay. Which is, uh, you know, Jenny and is like Jenny and Leo and Morgan and like all of these uh, characters. And um, Leo DeLuca actually got sacrificed. And oh wow! She was yeah. distraught. <laughs> she was very <laughs> upset. <laughs> More so than any of the named characters from the story. <laughs> She's like, Zebulon, I hate that guy. Yeah. Leo, no. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've even I've even put Armitage down to protect Duke playing Blood on the Altar. <laughs> and drew two kidnaps in a row and lost them both. And, you know, it was like, Armitage, the one thing you were meant to do is protect my dog. You, know, you can't <laughs> trust this old guy at all. Yeah. So move, moving on. It felt like with Where Doom Awaits, we did another sort of the story so far episode after Where Doom Awaits, just before going into the finale of Lost in Time and Space. But it felt like in Where Doom Awaits, this was a real success in terms of this feeling of climax, this feeling of being on the brink of something great happening. And Peter observed that 
certain elements of the game seem to break down in Where Doom Awaits, <laughs> where you you can't expect to find locations and the game... Yeah, the, the, there are things, you know, there's the warning on the Crazy Shoggoth that if it kills you, you're, if, it, it, if it eliminates you, you're killed. Yeah. And there's Agenda 2. Where... Oh, yes. So someone had posted on Facebook thinking their, their agenda had a misprint on it and they couldn't <laughs> read the text. And I think, Matt, that's the kind of thing you might see and think, well, that's my job done. Right. Yeah, no, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, games and stories that uh, when insanity is a thing, they break the fourth wall a little bit. I'm thinking of, you know, things like Eternal Darkness, if you played that game, or, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything for games that people haven't played yet. But anyway, uh, that, that was definitely an intentional thing where we, we wanted to start messing with people. Like the fabric of reality is slipping away. Did you always want to have a possibility that the campaign would end at Where Doom Awaits? It was definitely, it, it, it ended up the way it started. Like it never changed from that point. Um, but it also just, it made so much sense for, you know, what was happening in the climax of that of that particular story. It was something that, uh, unlike, for example, Essex County Express, where there was a way to reconcile failure, failure in this scenario, the stakes are so high, I think allowing you to move on to Lost in Time and Space from where Demon Waits after failing wouldn't have made sense to me from a narrative standpoint. Like, you, you are at the very last, you know, moment here. Like, if you don't succeed, they're going to summon Yogg-Sothoth. And yeah. also, how you know, how do you get into the gate <laughs> if, uh, if, if you didn't get to the top of the hill, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I, like, that, I like that it ends that way, that it has the potential of ending there. And I, personally, I view where Doom Awaits as being the climax of the campaign. And lost in time and space is sort of just like a fever dream that happens afterwards. It really, it really took me by surprise as a scenario because I think I was expecting it to be. I'd really enjoyed Undimension Unseen. I mm-hmm. knew that Lost in Time and Space was the finale, and so I hadn't really thought too much about what would happen and where Doom awaits. And then played this scenario with this like really high Doom count on <laughs> on the agenda and like really detailed setup instruction and act deck being really affected by what's in your campaign log and there were yeah there were so many elements that felt like it was the finale and all all threads being drawn together to this scenario and yeah yeah i i loved it. it's 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 definitely up there as one of my favorite scenarios as a result of that i also i think the thing that threw people for a loop the most was even if you resign the the campaign is over which is definitely it's a little bit of a punch in the gut but i like the the story that that tells as far as like who these investigators are and why they do what they do, like they have the option to run away, but running away dooms everyone, so they have to press yeah. forward. You know that yeah. that really fits. Like if you read the back of the Investigators of Arkham book, like that is basically the theme of Arkham Horror in a nutshell. Like who are these people who do this and why? Yeah, and what what they have in common is that they're the people who ideally don't run away right right and, and you apart from a... those speed runners who are resigning whenever they find a resign, <laughs> right, resign yeah. location yeah uh, the bradley method <laughs> and that brings us up to lost in time and space did you feel the campaign achieved everything you wanted it to yeah i i think so i mean are there things that that maybe would have been different with uh with more time of course that is pretty much the the case for any product anyone ever makes ever at a certain point you have to look at it and think okay this is good. This is done. 
but for me, I'm, I'm really, really happy with the way that the cycle turns out. Uh, partly because, like I said before, I, I was kind of flying on the the edge of the edge of my seat there for a while, and I didn't know how some of the things would be taken by by the the community, and the community really loved everything. So I, I'm really happy with with that, and the the strength of the first cycle uh, will only like. I think be dwarfed by future cycles as now uh, the game's been out for a while and I can draw from the community's experiences to design future cards and future scenarios. Yeah, You mean you can mess with us? Yeah. Right? <laughs> because you've got responses from the survey and then obviously people having played it and just told you what they think now. Uh, has anything in particular stood out as being, you know, success- successful or unpopular well, I think the strange solution ended up being a success. Um, I think people really enjoyed that mechanic. I think just the, the campaign log and the way that that tells a story. Like, I, if you if you go back and you look at the campaign logs that people are posting online, you can see, you can read each entry in the campaign log and get a sense of the the overall story, which was a major goal of mine. I really wanted to create a story where players were excited to share their experiences online and uh, on social media. Um, and I think that that's definitely the case. The Facebook group for Arkham Horror is is huge and going strong. Uh, the Discord community is huge. Obviously, you guys, the podcasts. I, I know, I, I, I couldn't wait to publish mine on, on our, my deck building website. As soon as I'd, all the cards were live, I was straight on there writing up what happened. <laughs> yeah, and given that I help with getting the cards up there, I, I think you even asked me if the <laughs> so cards were up. One, once or Peter? twice, yes. <laughs> I have some. I have the survey in front of me here, by the way. Um, oh, really? It doesn't take into account anything after Blood on the Altar, because this was before before Undimension and Unseen came out. But um, I do have some interesting data that I can share if you're interested. Oh, please, please. do, yeah. Let me see. I have to do a little bit of math here. There were... Uh, the vast majority of people who took trauma only took one one or two points of trauma, but there were... Let's see. There was at least one response of seven trauma. Oof. Seven, so one investigator. Seven, seven mental trauma, yep, on, on a single investigator. Uh, and another of six and another of five. So that's wow. one. <laughs> I mean, that starts to limit who you can play as, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're basically only Daisy or Rex at that point. Uh, one thing that I find really interesting is that the spread of experience is very wide. There were some investigators who had, uh, and again, this is about halfway through the campaign, had uh, between 6 and 10 experience. Some had 11 through 15. Some had 16 through 20. Uh, and it was pretty evenly spread. Uh, some had 21 to 25. Some only had 0 to 5. Wow. So I, I find yeah. that really interesting because it means that some some groups are going out of their way to get more experience and some groups are playing it safe. Yeah. Is, is there is there a correlation between what difficulty people are playing on and the experience? Or It's very possible, but that's... Unfortunately, I can't extract that data because ah. um, they're like separate, separate questions that don't correlate. Yeah. Um, when I've played True Solo, if I'm playing as someone like, say, Wendy, who I've just played through recently... I was getting about three per scenario and feeling great about that. That felt like a, a big achievement. So I, yeah, I got to the end of Essex and I think I'd I'd got 13 experience then. 
And that was like, yeah, okay, I'm doing really well. And then I've just been playing two-handed and played <laughs> extracurricular activities and got seven experience in one scenario and I sort of don't know what to spend it on. And I, I love that there's this range within the game mm-hmm. that you don't take it for granted that you get 10 per scenario and you can buy everything you want and you change your play style depending on how much you've got and what becomes vital and what you can do without and things like that. Yeah. That's, what that's else? Uh, observation. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. Uh, any other bits of data that you think are particularly important? The character who was sacrificed to Yag Silthoth the most was Earl Sawyer. I would oh, have guessed yeah. Earl. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was, yeah. It was that, the one who went for us as well. Yep, and the one that was sacrificed the least was Dr. Armitage. How interesting. I would have guessed that as well, weirdly. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I guess there are the most chances the to have to get, him in your right? deck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I would imagine that he... I've seen him hit the table and be really useful on the table, but some people I've played with have been like, oh, I just use him for his two wild icons, and they don't they don't put him down on the table and use that amazing ability. So that means that he's more likely to not be kidnapped because they're not playing him. And I wonder if, broadly speaking, that's people's experience that that they don't see the use of the, the three resources. They want the card instead. Um, uh, it's very possible. Maybe. So we've got the path to Carcosa coming up. And this takes a slightly different turn because it's not drawing as explicitly on a H.P. Lovecraft well-known story and it's, it's leaning on this short story collection by Robert Chambers. Mm-hmm. Are there any Lovecraft or more broadly Cthulhu mythos stories or monsters or, or elements that you're really looking forward to bringing into the game? And is there anything that you look for when reading you know, uh, Cthulhu mythos stories that you think, oh, that would really work in this game? that you can tell us about. Uh, yeah, definitely. I will preface this, though, by saying that, you know, any any answer I give here doesn't necessarily guarantee that anything will show up in the future. Um, so sure. if, I, if I say, you know, a particular story, that doesn't mean like, oh, that's going to be cycle three. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. don't, don't read into okay. anything, viewers. But I really like The Mountains of Madness. It's one of my, one of my favorites. I also really like The Shadow Out of Time. That's, that's the story in which a uh, professor is uh, basically discovers he, he has amnesia and he discovers that all of those uh, years he doesn't remember are because he was mind swapped with a Yithian. Oh, I hate it when that happens. That sounds familiar. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> like you do. And uh, and then he starts to discover uh, the, the ruins of the city that he once explored in his Yithian body. Um, and it's the kind of thing that it's not like there's, there's no monster out to get him. There's no, uh, like, everything that happened to him that was scary happened in the past, but his comprehension of the world is, like, completely shattered by this information. So that's an interesting story. Well, we have have this in in the very first story in The King in Yellow, Mm -hmm. that it seems to be like a classic Arkham setting. It's an American city in the 1920s. And I actually had to, when I when I read it recently, I had to then check when it was published because he wrote these stories in the late 19th century. So he's actually doing speculative fiction. Uh, yeah, but yeah. It starts and you're like, okay, that's fine. But then you get this, this creeping dread from what he's saying just because you realize that it's based on, on imagination rather than on... Robert Chambers is the king of 
the unreliable narrator, which is a, a technique in which you're you're giving information to the reader, and the reader is forced to question this information, uh, and you encourage the reader to question this information because it, it, it shouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And if if this doesn't make sense, then maybe this doesn't make sense either. And then you're you're kind of stuck with this sensation of um, why did I even read this story when none of it might be true at all. Uh, but it's very interesting. But based in based in on what you said in other interviews, Matt, I can tell it's something uh, you're you're fond of. You, you yeah. like that technique, and I can I can see I can see parallels with Arkham. I mean, we've seen it in in cards and stuff. Stuff you expect. The game lies to you. The game says, right, well, you know, enemies are always in the encounter deck. Uh, you draw a card, and then the enemy attacks you. Right. Even that, that that's not true. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes a different card is a is an enemy, or sometimes an encounter card is also a location. Yeah, definitely. I, I really like to um, play around with what what the game can do, and Robert Chambers' uh, work provides a like a perfect opportunity to do that. So I think you'll continue to see that sort of thing. Uh, but there's also obviously a lot of pressure on me to make sure that scenarios are fun to replay and not just the first time around. Yeah. So this cycle in particular, I think, makes good use of a mechanic that makes it fun to replay through the entire campaign multiple times. I, I don't know whether you, you can... Oh, well, th- that does lead me on to another question, actually. But also, is this... We, we've seen um, in some of the, the announcement articles we've had so far, there's this conviction and doubt mechanic. Uh-huh. Is that is it, is it maybe tied to that? Is that going to give us two at least two paths to play through the game as all the, the campaign has? Yeah, that that is one of the um, at least three paths actually. That is wow. one of the mechanics that helps to add some replay value to the campaign, where uh, one one group is playing through and they're doing this path, one group is playing through and they're doing a different path, and uh, hopefully the end result is that those two campaigns feel quite different from one another narratively. And hopefully at no point the end result is none of this was real and you shouldn't have trusted the narrator. <laughs> it was all a dream, you wake up. <laughs> no! No! <laughs> well, it, it's, it's interesting as well, because I, I know, again, from, from interviews you've had in the past, uh, you were a fan of the, do you guys call them Choose Your Own Adventure books? Yes, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's Fighting Fantasy is the brand that, I guess, in the UK we grew up with. Uh, and you sometimes see in those books, there's elements of the story or the backstory that aren't obvious when you first play it. Uh, and it takes multiple yeah. times through the story to pick up all the bits put together and create the narrative. Yeah, definitely. And especially when you're working with, with a source material like The King in Yellow, it, nothing really should be obvious the first time you play through, um, or maybe even the second or third time you play through. So I'm, my hope is that by the end of it, people are posting their their theories online and discussing it amongst themselves like any good mystery. I hope so. And I and I think the the Arkham Files universe is a pulpier version of, of some of the Cthulhu mythos. Uh-huh. And I know people who like to play things like Eldritch Horror where they when a new enemy's drawn they say, How do I kill it? And it's about the sort of the beating of enemies. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's an appetite within the community for it not to always just be about get to a location, kill an enemy. And it felt reading King in Yellow that there's really not a lot of heroes stepping up and dealing with great evil. And it's 
there's really some of the struggles are internal and mysterious and uh, sort of mentally threatening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, did you, was there a, was there a challenge in trying to, to marry those two things though? And how has that, how has that come off? Are you allowed to say anything along those lines to us? Um, I'll just say that, uh, I mean, obviously the framework of the game remains intact, right? You know, there, there are going to be enemies in the deck. There are going to be locations that you move to. It's not going to be just like a, a, a thing where it's all in your head and there's only treacheries going on. But, um, there is a greater focus on the personal uh, conflict that these are events that are happening to you uh, and not so much events that are happening that you're going in and stopping. It's actually quite different from, say, Dunwich Legacy, which is more like what I was talking about with where Doom awaits, where it's like you can you can walk away from this, and if you do, there will be repercussions for the world. This is the kind of thing that you can't walk away from because it's happening to you. Wow, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> So a, a related question, and this is maybe a bit more of a difficult question, Matt, so I apologise. No, but no you're, you're, this this cycle in particular, more so, I guess, than Dunwich, mm-hmm. you're dealing with the sensitive topic of mental illness. Yeah, yeah. Do you keep this in mind when you're designing Snow's Encounters so you're not falling back on cliches and stigmatism when, when you're doing it? Uh, yeah, definitely. That was That was something that the entire story group... Uh, was careful about when we were reviewing everything and when we were reading everything. Mostly I focused on the, um, uh, well, you know, maybe I'll leave the mystery a little bit open. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could I could say more, but I want I want to uh, have the players experience experience a lot of Carcosa for themselves. So okay, yeah, that, that that, that's sense? that's fair. I mean, yeah, yeah they, but they, definitely definitely sense. careful. Uh, it, it is a very sensitive topic, so it's definitely something that we're very careful about. But of course, you, you're still trying to balance that like pulp feel of it as well, aren't you? Where and and right. the, the, the source material, so people expect it from the game. Right, right, and also like the the way that the stories showcase insanity is very different from the way that insanity occurs in real life, and I hope that people, I hope that players will understand that and and respect that 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 i'm not i'm not trying to say that this is what you know that this is what it's like in a real sanitarium this is what it's like in an arkham sanitarium you know what i mean yeah yeah there's there's some there are some terms that are defined by the game that as a player of the game you buy into and that hopefully provides a framework within which you understand what's being discussed definitely yeah well, Matt, do you want? Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to ask this one? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was going to say, first of all, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic, and I think we're gonna. Thank you. It's 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 great great to be on the show. You guys are doing a really great job, and I really love. I've I've listened to every single one of your podcasts, and I really love all of them. And especially, I love the ones where Frank is going through getting his first impressions of the player cards. I think that's a lot of fun to listen to. Thank you. Um, but I understand it's difficult to, to avoid spoilers, so I'm not expecting that yeah. to always be the case. But if you do continue doing those, I will always watch them. Well, one of the touching things about it has been other people wanting to get involved with that. I, I definitely thought I was maybe being slightly odd in the head to want to try and do that in this day and age. But it's been nice to see the response. And Peter's been really supportive about it as well. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, because I'm, I, I, I'm sitting here when as, as soon as someone in the world opens their packs and puts the pictures online, I'm, I'm devouring it. And then I straight away, I'm like, I want to talk to Frank about this. <laughs> yeah. uh, but of course, he, he, he's, he's 
you know, he's like a monk staying celibate. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it's a very noble pursuit, and it harkens back to the days of the old CCGs when the internet wasn't as as uh, as common, and you could open a pack and actually see a card that you've never seen before. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you're probably going to say what I was going to say, Frank. But you still get some of that. So even as someone like me who has almost no willpower, it seems, uh, you still get <laughs> the, the encounter cards, and you sit down and you sort of see them as you're sleeving up, ready to play. And you're like, "Oh my god, what's this? Oh my god, what's this?" Right. Uh, and but then then it's all in a stack, ready to do something horrible to you in a few turns. So it's nice in Arkham. You get a bit of both. You do get the player cards. Um, and you can be thinking about those, and you've still got the surprise of the encounter cards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think in Carcosa especially, I will I encourage players to uh, to play blind. If if you're the kind of person who doesn't play blind and you look at all the encounter cards first, I encourage you not to in Carcosa because I think it, you will have a greater experience. Cool. We'll we'll echo that encouragement then as we do our Carcosa episodes because that could be a really fun thing so speaking about carcosa we've we've had announced min mark akachi so we've seen some of the investigators coming in the deluxe box but we've also had announced our first neutral investigator lola hayes the actress she's neutral she has as far as we've seen so far the most bananas unique deck building requirements because she can move from role to role and faction to faction so she can she has to take at least seven cards from three different factions, and Peter and I have definitely been scratching our heads about you know what you would put in a Lola deck. So Matt, help yes. our dear listeners. How on earth do you <laughs> build a Lola deck? This our final question to you. Uh, well, uh, I will say that I think the most effective Lola deck I've seen was not built by me. So don't necessarily take my word as as uh, as being a. Uh, the one way to do it but i find that lola is most effective when you're focusing on she has to take a certain amount of cards from three different classes right so you can't you can't just build a lola deck that's all guardian yeah but i find that lola is most effective when you're focusing on those three so you pick the three classes that you like the most and uh and i i've seen i've seen different combinations of three be very effective i've even seen a combination of four be effective but what the, my favorite thing about Lola is the idea that she could fill uh, weaknesses in your party as, <clears throat> as they happen naturally. So if you have, let's say, Guardian, Seeker, and Survivor, for for example, or Guardian, Seeker, and Rogue, you could be good at combat, investigation, or evasion at any given moment based on what you have in play and what you have in your hand. Uh, and that can be really effective for like on-the-fly swapping like oh all of a sudden we just flipped a four shroud location we really need the clues from it and our seekers all the way across the map lola can swoop in and you know pull out a magnifying glass and and go to town you know that sort of thing yeah yeah so she requires the player who's piloting her to have a certain amount of flexibility as well at that point then where to see success with lola you want you want to be open to the idea of okay i'm changing gears here i'm I'm becoming a seeker-style investigator for the next portion of the scenario, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and you want to be, you want to remain fluid, and because there, he, she's got two copies of a weakness that can clear lots of cards out of your board when you least expect it. So you want to remain open to the possibility that you might, you know, uh, lose some of what you've got, and that you might have to switch gears completely. If you're fighting a monster, 
you might have to switch to evading and running away from that monster at you know at any given moment. But what she's good at is she's good at capitalizing on the whatever weaknesses the scenario has. If there's a, a four fight one evade enemy, she can evade it really well. If there's a one fight four evade enemy, she could probably fight it very well. She's not pigeonholed into any particular play style, so um, she's a lot of fun to play. Uh, she is definitely difficult to uh, to pilot, like you said, but she's very rewarding. It's going to be in- crazy to upgrade her as well, just because she's she's open to so many cards. That, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's a whole different. Uh, she's almost like giving me a headache when I look at her because I I I <laughs> like being guided down a certain path a little bit. So Lola's like my worst nightmare. You know, someone, <laughs> someone who can do en- everything. I don't know how to do anything with. Yeah. She and she's she's not for everyone, and there there will definitely be investigators who aren't uh, who cater to a specific play style who aren't for anyone or for everyone, and she's one of them. But uh, if you get if you can if you can build the right deck, or even if, even if you can't build the right deck, even if you just throw in a bunch of different class cards, she can be a lot of fun to play, uh, just casually. I'm I'm really looking forward to trying her out. I might have to build up to it slightly. Yeah. I'll let you do it first, and and then if you have some some success, I can copy your deck. <laughs> cool, thanks. No pressure. <laughs> my my other advice is uh, she really likes constant abilities because she doesn't need to switch classes to trigger them because uh, they don't yeah. get triggered. Like um, just you know, you, if once you put a magnifying glass out, you have plus one intellect all the time. Yeah. So she really likes constant abilities. She also really likes neutral cards because she can always always use them. So yeah. Putting all of those neutral skills in can help a lot. Even even cards like knife and flashlight that aren't widely used, throw them in because she can always trigger them um, or always commit them. Even is very helpful. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, flashlight when you have three intellect is just it feels like such a great situation because there's often times when you can get the shroud of a location down to zero or one, then yeah. and then that that starts to feel really powerful that you can more or less rely on collecting clues. So yeah. That's that's a really useful observation. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope I didn't ramble too much. You didn't ramble too much at all. <laughs> this was wonderful. To our listeners, thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can email us. It's drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook as drawn to the flame. We're on Twitter as drawn to the flame. You can also find me, I'm FB on Twitter, EPH underscore BE, and I'm around the place as Zooey or Zozo. Peter, how can people find you? Yeah, I'm everywhere as Unitals, that's U-N-I-T-L-E-D, and I've got a little Super Meat Boy avatar, usually, so you can you can recognise me. Uh, Matt? Uh, it, it, you can always, anyone can always email me at my work email for uh, rules questions, although actually the easiest way to do rules questions is through the Fantasy Flight website, so do that. But if you wanna if you wanna get in touch with me, my Twitter handle is at Natsunoyoru, which is N A T S U N O Y O R U, and uh, yeah, uh, and, and I'm on I'm on Discord occasionally. I pop my head in every now and then just to say hi. So I think I think you have your own category, which is an Azathoth category. Yeah, <laughs> just, just always slightly yeah, foreboding I, when I, I, I wanted to be the blind idiot god. I thought that was <laughs> apropos. <laughs> thank you to everyone on facebook slack discord who've helped us with questions or who've posed questions about the game that we've drawn on for this episode we're really grateful 
Thank you to SF Rembrandt for our fantastic logo and for all of the great work he does with Arkham Horror Art. And Matt, the, all that's left for us to say is very special thank you for taking the time to speak to us. No, no, thank you. And, uh, and thank everyone in the community, ever, all of you who are listening and everyone who's bought the Dunwich Legacy. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to me that, that this game has exploded the way it has. It's, uh, it's very special to me and I'm excited for the future. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 